My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. I'm not saying that we've made incredible progress and solved racism in Canada by all of us white folks vowing to listen and learn over the past few years. I'm not saying that at all. But I would have at least liked to think that we learned a few simple things. Simple things like blackface is bad. It's racist. Don't do it. And yet... A day of Halloween fun quickly turned to racism at Parkdale Collegiate Institute when a teacher came to class in blackface on Friday. Students say the grade 9 business teacher who is white should have known better. That clip's not from 2001. It's not from 2011. It's not even from 2020. It's from last Halloween in Toronto. And even when we discuss massive network TV shows using blackface. We are not talking about the black and white era or the 60s, 70s, or 80s. We're talking about Tina Fey's 30 Rock in the 2010s. And it wasn't just an isolated gag. Multiple plot lines featured it. So as much as we may know, collectively, that blackface is offensive and racist, it somehow seems to keep happening. So what don't we understand about it? What context are we missing? And why do so many Canadians somehow see this as an American thing? When it's in our schools, our history, and in our entertainment, too. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Cheryl Thompson is an author, a public speaker, a professor at the School of Performing Arts at X University. Right now, she is writing a book about Canada's history of blackface. Hello, Dr. Thompson. Thank you for having me. I want to ask you first, when most people today hear the term blackface, what do they picture or imagine? Well, it's either two things. Either they imagine some random shot from the late 19th, early 20th century, such as Al Jolson, (laughs) or Mm. they picture something recent, a Halloween picture, for example, of someone that was snapped at Halloween, or even some people might even picture our prime minister. Right. And when they picture those really recent events, how does that compare to where blackface originally came from, to its origin story? Well, the thing is, is that the origin story of blackface is from the theater, right? Mm -hmm. It's a performative element that has a repertoire that goes back even into the 18th century. You can find evidences of it. When most people think of it, they don't think of that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so what we see in the contemporary is people who are almost divorced from history and they think they're just having fun. Like everything is neutral. I really admire this Black person, or I really think Black people are really cool. And if I want to look like them, well, obviously, air quote, I have to paint my skin to look like them, obviously. I think a lot of people who do this in the contemporary, that is literally what their thought 
pattern is. I won't ask you to explain the entire history of blackface to us because I know, uh, first of all, that you want us to read the book, but maybe you could tell that origin story uh, of how it came to be uh, part of the performance and, and, and what it was intended for back then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to give the whole history as you pointed to, but most people point to 1831, 1832. There was a white American performer by the name of Thomas Daddy Rice, who claims this is just something that's been passed down over, you know, the decades, that he was traveling through sort of the lower Mississippi. He saw an African-American man who was a stable hand, sort of dancing a kind of jig. He liked what he saw. He then painted his face and his body black, went on the stage and danced what was known as Jim Crow. That is what many people point to as the beginning of blackface. After that, in 1843, you have the sort of development of a group, an ensemble, who were known as the Virginia Minstrels, who then created the actual repertoire for blackface. They had the instruments, there were certain characters that were developed. And so the origin story of blackface is this idea of mimicking the plantation South, of mimicking the Black body that was enslaved on the plantation, and inverting that mimicry into good old days and, and happy times. A lot of the songs of early minstrelsy were written by Stephen Foster. And a lot of those songs are like nostalgic songs about the good old days on the plantation. So it's a combination of the performative caricature that's that's been obviously painted a coal black that's not even human, but mm. also the narratives of the minstrel show were essentially that slavery was fun. Black people were so much more happier there and look how they're dancing around and, and enjoying themselves. So it's that's the legacy of the minstrel show because it in the ether, it helped to sort of say to the dominant culture that slavery was okay. Right. Black people actually like being enslaved. They don't have any issue with that. In fact, you know what? Their lives were better when they were enslaved. And you can see, you know, if you look through history, that that nostalgia for the South never really went away. I mean, we have Gone with the Wind in 1939, probably the, the most commonly cited film to memorialize Mammy and the plantation, mm -hmm. even though they were not in blackface, essentially they were because they were portraying themselves as the happy slave on the plantation. And so that's at the root of it. And I think even in the contemporary, when it continues, there's a little bit of that that you still see in the caricature. In a moment, we'll talk about uh, contemporary entertainment and, and where it fits into that. But, you know, you really touched on it by explaining its origin um, in the American South, because I think that's what a lot of Canadians would associate with blackface traditionally through history. When did it come to Canada? And, and what do we know about blackface in Canada back in the early days? Yeah, and I should be clear that even though the minstrel show itself was set in the American South, the performers were all Northerners. Like everyone mm. who created the genre were, were basically from the North, from New York, Philadelphia, um, Ohio. They They had never lived in the South and they had never actually experienced slavery. So it was like their rendering of what it would have been like to be on the right. plantation. And so you're asking when it came to Canada. I mean, it came to Canada almost immediately because 
like Northern Americans, Canadians also had a fascination with the plantation South. There was also, you know, this narrative of, you know, and if you put it into context, the time period that I'm talking about is sort of mid to late 19th century, early 20th century. So for for historians out there, that is a time of what they would call industrialization, urbanization. So you have the cities of the North are becoming incredibly populated, busy, dirty, a lot of people having to cohabitate that maybe don't really like each other. And then in its inverse, you have the pastoral South where everything is so calm and people right. are so nice. That's where Southern hospitality comes from. So for the Northern person, Northern U.S. or Canada, to then be sort of experiencing the South through performance, it was essentially an escapism right? It allowed you to mm-hmm. imagine that there's a world where people stay in their place and you don't have the, the, the tensions of the industrialized North, people fighting for space and jobs. And, and maybe you're seeing people in your community and you don't want them to live there. You just mm-hmm. don't have to deal with that. So you can escape into this pastoral landscape, essentially, that's being crafted through the minstrel show. So in Canada, we've always enjoyed American entertainments. It's ju- it's just the truth. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's at the core. Why? Because we've we've often lacked the infrastructure to build our own. You know, it's only really been in the last maybe 50, 60 years that there's a you can say that there's a Canadian infrastructure for cultural production. Before then, a lot of what we would have been consuming was coming from either the US or Britain or France or somewhere else. You know, we we just weren't producing ourselves. Hence why we the CRTC was created in the first place, because right. there was a sense that not only do we need to protect Canadian content, but maybe we need to start producing it. So before that establishment, really, I would say in the 50s, right? Before then, probably 90% of what Canadians were consuming was coming from the US. I kind of touched on it a minute ago, but since you've been doing this work in such depth and talking to so many Canadians, do you find that Canadians do understand that there's a history of blackface in this country, or is it just assumed to be an American thing? (laughs) I mean, I kind of have to laugh because often they tell me, oh yeah, we used to go down to the Legion and watch a show. Or, oh. or they say, oh, yeah, my grand, there's, I think there's pictures of my grandparents in blackface in the 50s. I've yet, I'm telling you the truth, I have yet to meet a white Canadian of a certain age who doesn't tell me that either they went to a show as a child, a, a parent or a grandparent was in a show, or they remember seeing it. Like they remember one person told me they were in church and there was a church minstrel show that happened at their church. So I think this is kind of like a a unspoken secret that most people of a certain age, this would have been common entertainment. If you were alive in the 40s, 50s, and even into the 60s, you probably went to a minstrel show at one point in your life. We've done episodes of this show in the past um, talking about what kind of black history, if any, is taught in Canadian schools. And I am I am always shocked to find how little is there, even when it comes to things like slavery in Canada. Is this something that is in the curriculum, that should be in the curriculum? And what do Canadians need to learn about it? I mean, part of me wants to say, I think we just have to wait for my book to come out. 
<laughs> right. When does it come out? Well, I mean, I'm writing it now. So, you know, that's a process. <laughs> there are going to be a couple more years at least. I can't even make people pre-order it yet, huh? <laughs> no, unfortunately. But the reason I say that is because this is the kind of topic that you really have to have a nuanced understanding of history that is even beyond the stage, right? You have to have an, a nuanced understanding of the the racial culture at various stages in history. You know, so if you take the moment when Al Jolson is wearing blackface in The Jazz Singer in like 1927, that is a different moment than when Thomas Daddy Rice is dancing Jim Crow in the 1830s. Right. Like totally different, like a century apart and so much nuance, right? So... I would caution teachers <laughs> to present this in the classroom because you often don't have the time to unpack and there isn't a context that you can give, right? And and obviously we live in a social media age. If a teacher did try to address this in the classroom and didn't have a nuanced understanding, next thing you know, someone's on their Twitter like, look what my teacher put up in the classroom. Yeah, And it's like some, right. you know, racist blackface performer from a hundred years ago. And then there's this whole thing. I mean- Many listeners might not know this, but in the fall of 2021, there was an incident at Parkdale Collegiate here in, in yes. Toronto, right? Uh, but but elaborate for our listeners. Right. So there was a teacher for Halloween who came with his just his face painted black, but it was for Halloween. And according to reports, he went to a school assembly and he was walking around. The students were kind of expressing discomfort and, and some getting angry, but the teachers were basically ignoring it. They really didn't say anything. And then obviously parents were informed and then it hit the media and it was a whole sort of a media blitz, I guess you could call it. And then yeah. he was subsequently, I think he was fired, but it, it, he was suspended. And then I think he was let go from the school. But so that kind of thing, right? In the 21st century, imagine if that teacher tried to teach blackface in the class, you know? It, Fair. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, you really do need the tools. And this is just the truth. The book that I'm working on is really going to be the first ever book of its kind to really unpack this history in relation. So it, it's a book about Canadian blackface, but I have to talk about everything else before I get to Canada. <laughs> so you're going right. to have some context to understand how it is that this genre of performance was literally performed in Canada for, I would wager at least 130 years on a regular basis. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. How has it endured so much longer than the most obvious racist tropes and beliefs? You know, like, I think we're at a point where... Uh, a vast, vast majority of Canadians, if you put them on a survey, would say like, yes, that's wrong. That's racist. But it still pops up. And often, if you believe the people that that end up explaining why they did it, 
it often ends up with people who just somehow claim that like, oh, I, I was doing it all for fun. Like, how does how does that still exist? Yeah, I mean, it still exists because, you know, there's still this thing in our culture where Black people are just not fully seen as human. If I can just be really honest with you, mm-hmm. um, we're not seen through the same lens as, say, white people see themselves. So we're always othered. You know, I just generally speaking, I think when you don't live in proximity to people, so you're not interacting with people, it's easy to mimic them, right? It's easy to see them as other, and it's very easy to then demonize or also pit them as the clown, right? To just assume Mm. a clownish kind of body and also see them as a fool. In one of my classes, actually, I teach students about the fool. That archetype of the fool has existed for eons. And every culture has a fool. And often in the Western world, the fool type of caricature has often been a Black person who has been framed Mm -hmm. in that way or caricatured in that way. And because it's generation after generation and everybody's laughing at the same jokes, if you really think about it, why would you question it? Yeah. Like it actually seems more strange that someone would question something that everybody thinks is funny. In order to do that, especially if you are part of the dominant culture, you need a lot of courage (laughs) because you might lose friends. You might have some family that suddenly you don't want to talk to you. So it's a really hard thing to confront because everybody's in on it. Do you think that that is changing at all. I mean, we've spent, uh, depending on on which white people you listen to, we've spent a couple of years now talking about how we're listening and we're learning and there's a real reckoning going on. Like, it, it seems kind of crazy to me now based on the conversations of the last few years, but like, Blackface was on major network television <laughs> shows less than a decade ago, right? <laughs> yes. um, and I wonder if that attitude has moved at all. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I remember vividly watching Mad Men and seeing it. I remember watching 30 Rock and seeing it, like shows that I actually really liked. And so for yeah. me as a Black viewer, believe me, I cringed. But because, you know, you're watching TV in isolation <laughs> and then after the show is over, you kind of just move on. Like you kind of think, okay, that was weird. It's I think mm-hmm. a lot of people have that, oh, that was strange reaction, but then nothing really comes of it. And I think you're right. That was not too long ago. I think we do live in different times now. I think mainstream shows would have a hard time getting away with some of that. But to be honest, I think it's really hard to know what's in people's minds and hearts, to be honest. You know, it's it's a thing that that even I'm trying to figure out as I study this phenomenon. But what does matter is that in our institutions, especially our public institutions, that these kinds of behaviors cannot be tolerated. To me, that's actually most important, that a teacher can't come to school and do this and just everybody acts like it's fine. No, (laughs) absolutely not. I'll ask you uh, as we get close to wrapping up then, when you struggle with that in your work, what are you trying to, to get your head around as you try to put this together? Well, especially I have so many artifacts that are basically community-based blackface shows that were put on by local members of the community, such as church groups, a lot of like single events, (laughs) like, you know, Mm. dating events would, they might be a menstrual show that, that, that was tied into the couple's event. Really? Oh yeah. I mean, things that would really make you cringe. Yeah. So I, I have that cringe part. And then the other part is 
when I look at, you know, the people, there's, there's pictures of them. These are people's parents. These are now people's mm. probably grandparents. They probably had a wonderful home and they raised children and, and they were so happy. And on the side, they just did this. <laughs> That's like really offensive and racist. And it's like, how do you reconcile that? Yeah. So I know when I get to that part in the book, I'm going to have to, you know, figure out a way to explain this cognitive dissonance because that's exactly what it is. Do the people you're talking to about that stuff, do you see them cringe too or is it you? Um, there's a, there's cringe, but I've also experienced people who I think are are ashamed. I know I've had people, um, white Canadians, send me artifacts from their own family collection. Hmm. Like someone dies and you're clearing out the house and then you stumble upon <laughs> a box with some old pictures. And right. then because you know, people are starting to know me in the country that I'm doing this work. I've had people email me and say, you know, I have this, you know, can I send it to you? Because I know that you actually might know what to do with it. And then they add a caveat to please not to publish their names, mm -hmm. right? So don't say where you got this from. And so for me, that obviously suggests that that person is ashamed and maybe they feel guilty and they don't want anyone to know that, you know, grandma might have been racist. But I think what's really healthy to understand is everyone in grandma's generation was racist, probably. Right. <laughs> like, we're not talking about an individual family. Like, we're talking about a culture of racism. It's It doesn't reside in one person. And I say that because I think a lot of white Canadians need to kind of free themselves from this idea that it's just their family. So if they get called out as racist, they'll be the only ones. Actually, no. Like, racism is in the fabric of everything. So for you to cling to it as if it's an attack on you as a person, again, that's part of the problem. Because if you're only seeing it as residing in one person, that means that when I tell you institutional racism exists, you're going to tell me that that doesn't exist because racism is just one person. It's not institutions, right? right? So it's a combination deal with people. They cringe. And then they partly think, oh, I wonder, I wonder if there's any blackface in my, in my family. <laughs> and so last question then, that's progress, right? Because in the past, or even just given the, the judgment around uh, blackface in our culture today, rightly so, those people would have thrown those things out, right? Or gotten rid of them or just never said anything to anybody about grandma's blackface photo. And now they're recognizing that this is part of our history that needs to be preserved and reckoned with, right? I'm trying to put an optimistic spin on this here, maybe failing, but do you see what I'm saying? No, no, no. I completely agree with you. The fact that people are reaching out to me, a Black Canadian, and saying, hey, look, I have this. I don't believe yeah. that would have been the case 20 years ago. Absolutely. So I think we're at the beginning of people kind of recognizing that here's the truth. If you're Canadian and you've been in this country, your family has been in this country for over a century, you probably have some racist memorabilia somewhere in the house. It's just a fact. Yeah. You do. If it's not a magazine cover, if it's not somebody kept this newspaper from 1925, there is something in your person that connects right. to a history of racism. So for me, the fact that people are willing to approach me with that right? In fact, somebody just got in touch just this week and said, hey, I found this racist cartoon from a newspaper from 1925. Do you think you'd want it? 
Would it be like, useful? Yes, please. Yes. And I say, yes, thank you very much. Exactly. So I do see that as progress. And I don't think that's like rose colored glasses. I really do think that is the beginning of people realizing that if you are part of the dominant culture, that means you have the memorabilia of the dominant culture going back generations. And the only way you're going to heal is to take all that out the closet and we start to unpack it and talk about it. Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for unpacking some of this with me today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Cheryl Thompson, if I had a pre-order link, this is where I would tell you to go get her book. I can't wait to read it. That was the big story. For more from us, you know where to find us, thebigstorypodcast.ca or on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn or via email at thebigstorypodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. One day, I'm going to do this whole outro in one breath and I'm going to feel great about it. But until then, you can find this podcast in any podcast player you like. When you do, remember to rate it, remember to review it, and most importantly, remember to tell your friends. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.